Dear sisters and brothers in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. So in my growing up years, even though my dad was a pastor, I was born the first year at seminary, they both, my mom and dad, had come from farm families. One dad had farmed east of Sioux City, mom just north of Mitchell. And so my very earliest memories, particularly at the farm in Mitchell, was going home at the February bull sale. And I was so helpful as a three-year-old currying a bull. You cannot imagine how helpful three-year-olds are. That was me. So I loved farming. In fact, I wanted to be a farmer at one point in my life. I liked every part of it, but it was not to be. So here I am today. But as I started dating this young woman, I discovered that her father had also grown up on a farm in western Oklahoma. And farming in western Oklahoma is very different than Iowa or South Dakota. One of the main crops is cotton. And I listened to my father-in-law, future father-in-law at the time, talk about what it was like to harvest cotton. It was much like listening to my grandfather talking about picking corn before corn pickers were invented. But he and his girlfriend, and then later on his wife, would go and hire out after the crop had been brought in at his dad's place. And they would hire out, and a good woman cotton picker could pick 500 pounds in a day. And a man was supposed to pick 1,000. And the way you did it is you had a big, wide leather sash attached to a bag that was, well, long, right? 20-some feet long. And you picked bent over. If you were really good, you picked on both sides. Otherwise, you just picked on one side. But the bowls were all dried out. They were sharp. Your fingers would bleed until they got calloused and built up. It was either hot or cold in the fall. And my father-in-law talked about as the bag would fill up and finally it would hold approximately 200 pounds as you would drag it through the field bent over, how hard that was. And his goal was to be able to empty that five times in the course of the day. And he talked about how wonderful it was on that last final trip to the wagon when you could unhook and empty the bag and you were no longer dragging it around. And even though that you were bone tired, exhausted, how wonderful it felt to not drag that weight around. I want you to think about that and hold on to that as we move through the sermon. When I was a seminarian, I had a wonderful professor that invited me to look and read my cemetery, if my church had one, and I did. So out at Scandinavia and at Bethany, southeast of Aberdeen, I spent some time just wandering the cemetery, looking at headstones. And I came across the one that still sticks in my brain like it was today. And here at the beginning of the week, clearly, there were five children and a young husband and a young wife. And at the end of that week, at the end of that week, there was only a father and one son. Through the course of the week, mother had died and four of the children had passed away, all from Spanish flu. And I've spent pretty much the rest of my career studying pandemics, and we are in one. We're coming now kind of toward the end, but we're still in it. 
And the one thing I know about pandemics, whether they were this year or a century ago in South Dakota or 500 years ago in Wittenberg, Germany, they always do the same thing. They're really destructive to culture and society. They tear communities apart, unlike communities that are pulled together over one act, natural disasters. Around singular events, we pull together, we come together as a community, we help one another. But pandemics do exactly the opposite. They drive us from one another, they increase anxiety, they increase anger and suspicion. And guess what? There's always, always conspiracy theories. It was true in Wittenberg, it was true a century ago, it's true today. We just didn't have the internet back then, right? But again, we, we grow distrustful of one another because pandemics are capricious and arbitrary. They strike without warning. They come and enter our lives and our communities and they are destructive. So I want you thinking about that as you listen to the gospel reading. I remember being a young man in confirmation had a great pastor, Dave Eglund, was our pastor in the eighth grade, and we were studying this text. And I finally remember asking, is Jesus serious about, he wants us to love our enemies? And I remember David looking at me and at the rest of the other 41 children in that confirmation class and saying, yeah, Jesus is crazy. I went, can you say Jesus is crazy and still keep your job? <laughs> he goes, yeah, he's just nuts. And then I remember him saying, if you want to know why Jesus got crucified, here would be one of the prime reasons that he was crucified. He's turning the world upside down. Everyone knew how the world worked. You had the law of retribution. We all learned it in Sunday school, right? It's just rock solid in the Old Testament. What does it say? An eye for, and a tooth for a, it's, it's equal, right? It's fair. And if you don't know what fair means, just have two children start into a fist fight. If one hits the other one harder, right? It's not fair. If you're gonna hurt one another, it's gotta be equal. That's fair, the law of retribution. But here Jesus is turning it upside down. That's not the way we're going to be in this community. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. If someone steals your coat, give them your shirt. Crazy talk and certainly crazy right now. How does Jesus even dare talk this way? That's not the world we live in. One of the most painful parts, even before we got to this pandemic, back when I was serving as bishop, was traveling and being able to speak to college students on a regular basis. Love doing that. Having lively conversations. As they finally figured out they could be honest with me. And I heard from so many of them how they had decided not to be Christian because they found our community to be so angry and judgmental and that the community was not life-giving. 
To be a follower of Jesus Christ means we need to not just love our neighbor, but love our enemy. And guess what, folks? We just can't do it. I don't know about you, but I have my little garden of woe where I have planted all the people that have hurt me. And I go there on a very regular basis to kind of look at it and tend to it and make sure that I don't forget that you hurt me. I like hauling all that around. And I really like being able to hold it against you, even if you don't know it. But you know what? The part that I have figured out in my life is it starts to feel a lot like that sack that my father-in-law pulled around and that my mother did, mother-in-law did. It just gets more and more burdensome until finally it's almost like I can't move. But then there's that gift in this text. Because I think Jesus, even in his speaking of it, knows that it is in fact impossible for us to do that. And that in fact, that is why he is here on earth, so that he might do it for us. For while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us. See, in my own little mind, I want you to earn my forgiveness, right? I mean, I, I of course, deserve it. But you need to earn it. You've got to do something. You've got to change your behavior. You've got to, well, you've got to be a lot nicer to me, for one thing. And then, and only then, I might deign to just think about forgiving you. But that is not what we hear from Jesus Christ. For there is mercy, he says in this text, there is mercy for the wicked and the unbeliever. I've had moments in my life when I've just been embroiled in conflict and I have enemies aplenty. And sometimes it was my fault, not theirs. And I know what it feels like to go to a worship service and to hear the words of absolution. David, your sins are forgiven. And I finally get to experience what it was like for my father-in-law to unhook that strap and leave all that weight behind. To have a new life and a new opportunity to have relationships mended and life have its way in me. One of the great gifts that I've had in my life is I've been surrounded by sinners and saints my whole life long who lived a life of gratitude, who finally did understand fully that they were not deserving of the gifts that had been poured into them. That through the gift of forgiveness and new life in Jesus Christ, they could actually forgive people and did so. And that they lived a life filled with gratitude. This morning, I want you to hear that this gift of forgiveness is for you and that it can matter like no other in your life. It can reshape the course of your families, of your life, to forgive those who finally have hurt you so that you, in fact, might love them, to unburden yourself, to step into a new life. So God's blessings to each one of you as you are the people of God, as we struggle with this text, but know finally and ultimately that it is Christ's work in us and through us that this happens. Amen.